Hi everyone, you're listening to Humanize Your Workplace with Alyssa Carpenter, where we chat about all things, well, human. On each of these bite-sized episodes, I'll give you something new to try to become more self-aware, help you build better work relationships, or just try to get you through a sticky work situation. It all starts with an open mind and a conversation. On this week's episode of Humanize Your Workplace, we're joined by Jen Serrett. Jen believes that inequity can be eradicated by the recognition of our shared humanity. She has spent the past 12 years researching and studying the concepts behind this work, the histories, and perspectives of groups of difference, and ways to leverage her privilege and perspective for the good of everyone. From the classroom to training seminars, Jen has provided guidance in the concepts behind discrimination, privileged, and inequity to college students, medical students, business leaders, and the community. Her PhD in interdisciplinary studies, which focused on disability studies, anthropology, and history, has prepared her to guide you and your organization to understand and utilize the concepts behind inclusion so that together you can work towards sustainable, ethical practices to ensure equity for all. Thank you so much for joining us, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be speaking with you today. I would love to kick things off with you just sharing a little bit more about your career and what you're currently working on. Sure. So I've spent about the last 12 years in higher education getting my PhD and teaching and things like that, really focusing on um, disability, disability rights and inclusion, uh, particularly with autism and intellectual disabilities and neurodiversity. I have an anthropological type of background. Um, and part of all of this work is wrapped up in some of the foundational concepts of diversity, equity, inclusion, things like intersectionality and othering and microaggressions, implicit bias, all of these things that we keep talking about these days. Um, and in recent uh, years, I've really been interested in bringing this work to the private sector. So um, and now um, I just launched my company, Disruptive Inclusion, which does um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, we focus on teaching the foundational concepts of DEI, those concepts I just kind of talked about, really from a social justice perspective. And then we also specialize in disability-related DEI, which is um, a part of DEI that I see kind of lacking in some areas. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to assess where an organization is at, um, come up with a good plan, and then either implement trainings and workshops myself as an ally or rely on some of my disability self-advocates and leaders in the disability world to, um, to jump in and kind of help out with those initiatives as well. And you mentioned a few key terms, and I'd love to hear your definition of these terms, just so we can get the audience really on the same page of where we're headed. And if you wouldn't mind just defining for us really what um, neurodiversity is, as well as disability, and if there are any other terms uh, that you think are really relevant in that space that we should just be aware of as a foundation. Yes, thank you. It's so such a good idea to get oriented on the, on the terms um, before a conversation gets started. I'll start with disability. Um, disability is kind of a challenging word to, um, to define. It, it varies depending on your context and who you're talking to. Um, 
But in general, from the perspective of, of disability rights and disability studies, um, disability really talks about a range of bodily, cognitive, and sensory differences and capacities. And what's important to remember about disability is that it's fluid. Um, it can happen to anybody at any time. Um, and it's situational, so it can kind of even wax and wane within any particular person. Um, and I pulled that definition largely from um, a work, uh, Keywords in Disability Studies by some colleagues um, in the disability world. Um, and it's also important to know that some disabilities are really physically apparent. Um, we think about people using wheelchairs or canes, um, things like that. Um, and, and even some are very physically apparent behaviorally. But then a lot of disabilities, um, even most, are not. Um, and what's interesting and important to keep in mind about that is that when you have a disability that's not immediately apparent, it's a real personal choice on when and where to disclose your disability, and even when and if to identify as disabled. Um, is there a follow-up question? No, no, keep going. Okay, great. So this brings me straight into neurodiversity. Um, so neurodiversity is the disability rights and activism perspective on neurological differences. It was emerged out of the world of autism, um, but has now been kind of adapted and applied to other um, disabilities and differences, even things like ADHD or bipolar disorder, things like that. But what it um, is a metaphor reliant on the concept of biodiversity, which as we know, um, says that in order to maintain sort of the balance of our world, we need a bunch of different species that balance each other out. And neurodiversity says we need a bunch of different human neurological outcomes and manifestations to balance out the human community. And that no particular neurological manifestation is um, unnecessary or unwanted. So this means that things like autism shouldn't be normalized, shouldn't be cured, um, but really should be celebrated as an important part of our neurological variation. Um, and the last word I really want to um, talk about, I mean, there's a ton, but I really want to um, mention the word ableism. It is a really important word in the disability um, world, and it refers to sort of the preference for non-disabled bodies and minds. Um, which leads to the discrimination of people with disabilities in a variety of interpersonal and systemic and structural ways. So, you know, very much like we talk about racism and sexism, ableism is um, sort of right in that category of concepts. And I'm, I'm curious because I want to dig a little bit deeper. And thank you so much for defining them because, I, again, I think it's just really important to understand what the foundations and, and what they look like. And what I think it makes it so difficult is so much of this is really invisible and can present itself in really different ways. And just because two people have autism, it doesn't mean that it presents itself in the exact same way. I would love to hear if you have any stories or examples of yourself or someone else who was really able to help employees and provide them with the resources that they need to be successful in their roles because it can vary and conversations can be hard to have to even get to understanding what somebody might need who may fit in this space. Absolutely. Yeah, I did some um, really enlightening research a few years ago about um, experiences of autism in the workplace. And it's actually, um, I can share with you an open access article I wrote about it. But one of the things my participants talked a lot about was, again, this issue of disclosure, um, when to tell employees and colleagues about 
being autistic and um, what some of the pitfalls of that are. And some of the challenges that I heard a lot about were um, people actually questioning an autism diagnosis. So I'm saying things like, well, you don't seem like Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory. You're not autistic or, you know, things like that, which is kind of, you know, very demeaning to somebody's, you know, self-expertise and identity. But I heard some really great stories. I had a, um, a woman talk about how she had the opportunity to write about her autism in the company newsletter. And it was such a nice moment of celebration of her autistic identity that the entire company really congratulated her. And um, she, she received such love and support from that. And I, and I love that idea. I love the idea of um, providing the space of celebration for our differences um, in this way that's not um, in line with, oh, this person's gonna have to ask for accommodations or, or let's all be careful of this person because of their disability, right? It's really like, tell me about this disability identity and how amazing it is for you and like how amazing it is for our organization and our company. And mm -hmm. yeah, no, I'm curious too, even from both sides of, do you have to disclose? How do you disclose? I assume each state really has different rules and regulations around that. And how can you even ask, you know, that that question? Because even I see it virtually, you're having different experiences with your employees than you would in person and your interactions might be different. So it might not be as apparent as, as maybe in the past. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna get accommodations, obviously you have to disclose. Um, you don't always have to disclose what your diagnosis is um, if you aren't comfortable with it, but um, disclosing that, you know, I have a particular disability and I need this accommodation. Um, and, and, and again, obviously some are more apparent than others. If you need a screen reader, for example, because of a visual impairment, then that's um, a particular indication. Um, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is applicable to companies with 15 employees or over um, and requires you to accommodate employees um, as long as they're not unreasonable and mm -hmm. don't sort of um, counter the, the job requirements in any particular way, which is um, sort of an interesting loophole. But again, they do require um, somebody to request them. Employers, I see, you know, there's lots of job applications saying like, tell us if you're disabled. That's mainly for um, demographic information rather than disclosure of a particular disability. And I think a lot of people with disabilities don't check that box because they know the stigma associated with applying for a job with a disability. But beyond that, if you don't need an accommodation, then there's nothing, no reason, and, and you don't wanna tell people about your disability, then you know, you're not required to. Um, and I don't, to my knowledge, I'm not sure of any legal ramifications of asking about it, um, but it might contrast with like HIPAA requirements mm -hmm. and personal health information. So it's largely inappropriate. Um, the thing to keep in mind about the Americans with Disabilities Act is there's no sort of, you know, implementation committee that goes around and checks businesses. So it really does require somebody to recognize a breach of the Americans with Disabilities Act um, and bring it to the attention of a lawyer and file a complaint and things like that. Oh, interesting. And and thank you for sharing that story about um, one of your clients or that individual really being able to share their experiences in, in the company newsletter. Have there been any other experiences where leaders have provided accommodations or different things that organizations have done to show appreciation for our neurodiversity and differently abled individuals within their organizations? 
You know, I, I, I can't think of any specific stories off the bat right now, but I can tell you some really good strategies are bringing people into leadership roles, um, allowing people with disabilities or, or opening up possibilities for people with disabilities to be in leadership roles and just being flexible with that. I think um, in terms of neurodiversity, we're seeing a lot more representation of neurodiversity in the media. So people are becoming more comfortable with having neurodiverse colleagues um, and, in, and even in leadership positions. And I'm really pleased to, to be seeing that happening in our community. Um, I will say that while we are having more representation of, of, of things like autism in the media and other kind of neurodiverse profiles, it is rather limited and we're often seeing them being white, middle, you know, middle upper class men. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm looking forward to a day when we're having more diverse representation, both in media and in our organizations of neurodiversity and, and just disability writ large. No, and same, and especially it's so difficult because we might have neurodiverse people on our leadership team, but not know um, if somebody doesn't disclose it or because it presents itself so differently, we might not even be aware of what's going on or who might be taking on those roles. Exactly. And, and I also really like hearing examples about um, leaders that make sure to verbally recognize disability and accommodation needs and point it out in time. So saying, for example, um, OK, we're going to have this Zoom meeting. We have live captioning abilities. I want to bring that point that out to all of you so that you know that that is um, you know, a, a, a resource that you all can use, or there's going to be a transcript. I think the more that we specifically point out the kinds of accommodations that are happening in our workplace, and the more that leaders do that, the more comfortable people are going to be to say, hey, I'm really glad that that's there because I need it for this, that, and the other reason. Yeah, and I think it's not even going to the one person or two people specifically. It's more of this is what we're doing to be more inclusive. We have captioning. If you need headphones to drown out the noise within our you know, really busy environment, that's available. It seems like just being a leader and being proactive and explaining in general the accommodations and options that are available and more people will feel comfortable sharing what they would need. Yeah, and I'm hearing more and more about um, this being into the um, interview space for, for hiring people where people are asked, what is your preferred interview style? Would you like to have a traditional interview? Would you like to come in and display your skills on, uh, by working on some task with us? You know, various things like that. Um, you know, interviews are a minefield of, of social norms and interactions <laughs> that are just so challenging to navigate. Um, and it's particularly stressful for people who have you know, differences in social interaction styles. And I almost want to go back to the story when, when you were sharing about the woman sharing her experiences, because I, I've seen so many times before that in an effort for people to really be accommodating and trying to understand, sometimes there's just this overstepping mm -hmm. of, I want to be helpful. Let me open the door for you. Not that you shouldn't do those things, mm -hmm. um, but the person was who they were before you read the article. The person was who they were before they disclosed this information. How can we kind of get in this space where we're not overstepping, it's kind of getting our ego in the way, trying to be helpful when they might not need it. I'm just curious, curious if there's strategies that you have. Yes, these are, I'm so glad you asked this because this is in line with strategies of how to be a good disability ally, right? Um, one to start with is um, absolutely do not start telling pers the person that they are all of a sudden become an inspiration. Yes. 
<laughs> so there is this whole, this term called inspiration porn in the disability world. And that is sort of these stories of people with disabilities doing things that anybody else, like people without disabilities do, people with disabilities do, and elevating it to this um, discussion or, or this like representation of it being so inspirational. Oh, look, this, you know, this person who is, um, has a visual impairment was playing basketball. That means I can do anything, right? That's just, you know, uh, it's it's capitalizing or, okay. or it's exploiting somebody's disability for non-disabled persons feel goodiness, right? So that's that's one. Um, and the other thing I would say is really important is to not then all of a sudden target that person with all of your disability questions, right? We live mm -hmm. in the day and age when this information is so easily accessible on the internet. Educate yourself, but don't expect your disabled colleagues and friends to be the person that's going to teach you and guide you through this education because they are dealing with their own lives. They are dealing with navigating an ableist world. <laughs> they don't need to add on your personal enlightenment uh, uh, in regards to disability for it. Um, so there are, my website has a, a resources page that has some really good places to start. Um, I highly recommend the New York Times did a disability series where a bunch of people with disabilities wrote essays on their experiences. Um, and that is an excellent place to start. I, I love how you mentioned that because it goes back to being a token person of this person represents everybody who may have something similar to what they have or, you know, race, gender, ethnicity. And that's so difficult for that person to take on and not even a task that makes sense um, for the person to speak on behalf of everyone with autism. It's so true. And disability is such a heterogeneous category. There's so many differences in disability and within each disability, like you already mentioned with autism, I've never met two people who identify as autistic who have the same exact sort of manifestations of autism. Um, and I wanna add one more thing about being a good ally. Um, we need to keep in mind that our language is really important. Um, I always say that our language has moral baggage. The words we use have moral weight. Um, and in the disability world, and, and you'll, you'll, you may notice me modeling this language in this conversation, um, using the language of difference and not deficit. So not saying, oh, he can't do that. She's um, de deficient in this area. You know, talk about differences in social interaction style, differences in the way we communicate. Um, one, one big one is I continue to hear the phrase wheelchair bound. Um, nobody is bound to a wheelchair. Anybody who uses a wheelchair can get out of the wheelchair and wheelchairs are instruments of freedom and liberation. Um, and so, so saying things like wheelchair user or a person who uses a wheelchair. So just thinking about our language a little bit more intentionally is really important in being a good ally. And I even think when working with clients in terms of job descriptions, because sometimes we put out there, somebody needs to be able to stand for their entire shift or just certain things where it's, it's not really standing that they have to do. They need to be in a position, you know, for the length of their shift, if they're a cashier or something of that nature. So looking at that language is also important because you're being really exclusive and people won't feel like they can be hired for those roles when that's not really in fact the case. Absolutely. Like who needs to lift 15 pounds? To <laughs> what is the likelihood this will happen every day that you need to personally and, lift this? Right. And that it's not something that is very easily accommodated. Exactly. And I'm, I'm curious, I like 
how you mentioned the language and some words or phrases to use. So I have kind of two follow-up questions to that. One being, what are some phrases, additional phrases that you hear that people say that we should not be and kind of alternatives or other language that we should be using instead? And then I, I will definitely um, send listeners to your website in terms of resources because I think that's so helpful. My question would be almost once we're done with reading that or looking at that, when is it okay to ask a question or what should that question be and how do we phrase it? Because at some point you might want to learn more information. Absolutely. Great questions. Yeah. Um, so in addition to the to the language related recommendations, I have um, another one is these um, attempts to avoid the word disabled. So we hear unique abilities, special needs, differently able, that kind of stuff. Really, there's, there's no need for that because if we're trying to find an alternative for the word disabled, it's suggesting that the word disabled is bad and that disability itself is bad. So just say disability. It's not a bad word. It's not an ugly word. Um, it's fine. Um, and, and there's also a really interesting um, conversation about person-first language versus identity-first language. And person-first language is sort of a, a, a way to represent that a person is more than just their disability by saying, for example, person who has um, Down syndrome, right? Or a person with a visual impairment. Again, I've modeled some of this throughout. Um, there are some instances in which um, disability groups or advocates prefer identity first language, which means um, things where you put the disability first. So the two main groups who, who prefer the identity first language um, is the deaf community, um, which is a really strong cultural group. So if you ever see capital D deaf, that refers to the cultural group of, of people who are deaf. Um, and then the autism community, actually. A lot of the autistic self-advocates that I know and work with and are friends with um, you know, tell me autism is so important to my identity that it really can be at the beginning of the way that you talk about me and, um, and really is, is so instrumental in, in me being me. And I've also had an autistic person tell me, I really just don't like having to remind people that I am a person. That's <laughs> the first language, which I thought was really great. Um, so, but that actually um, is, a, it leads me straight into your second question of asking questions. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like we ask people pronouns, it's fine to ask people how to talk about their disability. Do you prefer person first or identity first language? Um, things like that is really um, fine to ask. Um, and it's also fine to say, I, I noticed that you um, have disclosed that you are autistic or that you use, a, you know, obviously you don't have to disclose that you use a wheelchair. Is there anything you want me to know about your disability, um, you know, it, or, or how you think about it? Um, are there any things that you would recommend to me that I read or watch? Um, you know, I think um, those are really great questions to ask. But but coming at it saying I've already done some work, right? Oh, I've been reading the New York Times Disability Series, or I watched Crip Camp, which is this amazing documentary that everybody should watch on Netflix. Um, and I thought it was so great. I've learned so much. Um, have you watched it? What are your thoughts? Um, those kinds of questions are, are, are really great to ask. And then in regards to if you see somebody with a disability and you want to help, again, like you said at the beginning, it's great to want to help. Just always ask first. I have you know, so many people who tell me that, you know, they're just kind of tooling along the sidewalk and all of a sudden somebody comes behind and grabs their wheelchair and starts pushing. <laughs> they're like, no. Like, <laughs> You know? I don't know you. <laughs> exactly. You don't even know where I'm going. <laughs> That's a good point too. <laughs> yeah. And if somebody says, no, I don't need your help. 
that's okay. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. And leave it at that, you know? Um, so it's, you know, it, it really, a lot of it is about perspective taking, you know, if you wouldn't want somebody in your personal space, messing with your bags or your shoes or your whatever, you know, nobody's going to want, people aren't going to want your, their devices messed with either. I mean, yes, because I think sometimes there's this, I don't want to say barrier people feel or non-barrier that you can just go up to somebody maybe with a wheelchair and, and move them around or whatever, but you would never move up somebody who's walking and pick them up and move. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. So thinking about what makes, how that person would feel and, and why you're actually doing it. If they didn't ask for assistance, is this more about you, you know, wanting to be helpful or is this really more about them? And the same goes for asking for some reason, if people think if they see somebody with a disability, they're allowed to ask about that disability in very personal ways. What happened to you? You know, that's, a, that's not something that people want to talk about all the time. You know, you wouldn't ask, you know, somebody who's non, non-disabled, tell me about your relationship history. Have you ever been traumatized? <laughs> like, I mean, like, you know, it's just, those are personal questions. Yeah. Um, and, and don't, you don't need to know just to fulfill your own curiosity, you know. Well, different. I just remember even being pregnant and people would come up and touch my stomach. I'm thinking, you wouldn't touch my stomach if I wasn't pregnant. You know, what are you doing? What's the space that you're in? That is the perfect analogy. (laughs) And I I just want to make sure I'm clear when you're mentioning person first, first identity first. Is it more of Sally has autism or Sally is autistic? Um, In general, um, it, you can say Sally is autistic. Um, but again, you know, I think it, it's really challenging. If your intentions are in the right place, then, then you're going to be fine. Um, and if somebody corrects you, say, I really actually prefer this other way of talking about it. Um, that's a, a moment for you to display that you're open to feedback and you're open to change. Oh, okay, great. That's fine with me. I'm happy to do that. You know, um, accommodations, disability friendliness, all of this other stuff is kind of new to a lot of people. Um, And so understanding that you're going to make mistakes and being open to being corrected is the attitude to come at it with. No, I appreciate it. And thank you so much, Jen, for all this, just nuggets of wisdom. I know that our audience will really, really appreciate it. And how, how can they get in touch with you? So my website is disruptiveinclusion.com. Um, you can go there. There are tabs all over to say, contact me, or you can just, you know, send an email at disruptiveinclusion at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And to our audience, if you have any questions that you wanted to be addressed in a future episode, you can reach out to me at Alyssa Carpenter on LinkedIn. Until next time. Thanks again for listening. But did you know that you can leave me a voice message to answer any questions on an upcoming episode? Just go into the show notes and the link will be there at the bottom for you to send me that message. Have a great day.